Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on WLPN. This week, Lumpen Radio spoke to a leading candidate for mayor, discussed cult cinema, and heard new music from a local rising artist. All this plus the Trump Diaries and much more, only on the Lumpen Week in Review for June 22, 2018. Mario Smith spoke with mayoral candidate Lori Lightfoot. Lightfoot discussed her status as the progressive standard-bearer in the race, how Rom can be beaten, and what City Hall really needs. News from the service entrance with Mario Smith airs every Thursday at 2 p.m. Joining us on the phone is mayoral candidate Lori Lightfoot. Good afternoon. Good afternoon to you. How are you? I'm doing very well, man. Wonderful, wonderful. I know you do not remember me, but I met you at the promontory months ago. Lori, this is... Ah, yeah, you... I do remember you. Okay, the uh oh. That was a great event. Okay, man. This is Mario Smith. I think if you if anyone's ever met you, they remember you forever. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> uh, it was nice meeting you that night, and I'm glad that you're on the show today. Um, we've had the pleasure of having uh, two other mayoral candidates on, trying to get to all of you. It's going to be a lot because it's 600 of you, but we're going to try <laughs> to get all of you. Um, one yeah, of the, we need to rent a bus, right? <laughs> and all travel together. Just have, like, barricades or something to keep each other away from each other. Um, one of the things that I want to talk to you about that stands out right at the moment is the latest thing that you really, really, spe- I don't want to use the word spearheaded, but you really, really got out in front of, and that's the Chicago Tribune investigation of CPS yeah. um, and their staff and the the unbelievable charges that have been laid against them for how they treat students, uh, particularly females, or male male students, I mean, female students, I imagine. Um, What is your position on what the city should do uh, in in this regard? And have they done enough? No, I mean, I think, I think, I think one big thing that we still don't know the answer to is why when they got the first substantive um, FOIA request from the Tribune on January 16th, in which they were specifically seeking information about uh, allegations of sexual and other abuse by CPS personnel. I mean, that is the reddest of red flags. And it's not like it was some fly-by-night news organization. It was the Chicago Tribune. And in the month of January, they got five total FOIA requests related to this issue, another eight in February, and then 19 total. Why did it take five months of inaction before the first words were spoken about this by the, the by CPS? And frankly, Ron Emanuel said nothing for another four days after the Tribune story broke. But Janice Jackson didn't say anything. She didn't communicate with teachers, parents, students, anybody, until that Friday night after the story broke. That, that is astounding to me and, frankly, other people that I've talked to about this in the two weeks since this story first broke. No one can understand that silence. I mean, if we don't have as a core mission at CPS protecting children so that they can thrive and grow and learn, then we're, those people need to be in a, in, in a different line of business. But I, that explanation on that five months of silence, when they were on the clock, um, we need to know about that, and they need to explain it, and they still have it. Any chance? Uh, well, to go with that, <clears throat> pardon me. Um, 
a judge yesterday said it will take 60 days before the, I, I don't know if it was a judge, let me take that back, but th- there's going to be another 60 days before anything is done about it. And and I'm just wondering, like you, what, um, why is the mayor really kind of sitting on his hands when he could I- easily solve this problem? Um, I, do you have an idea why he is refusing to really do anything well, about it? I, I never try to go into the mind of Ron Emanuel. Uh, I think you're going to have to ask him that question. But what I do know is any responsible adult and anyone clearly who aspires to leadership, who sees these red flags, who knows at least as early as January of this year, um, if not sooner given the 400 cases that were documented by um, the Tribune that happened on his watch, any responsible adult who cared about the health and well-being of children would have taken some specific affirmative action to make sure that the safety net of protection that has to be there in school was intact. What and we, the fact that that, wasn't, that didn't happen, to me, is an epic failure of leadership. What would you do as mayor with the Chicago public school system as currently comprised? Well, I mean, one of the things that I've been very upfront about is I um, support uh, an elected school board. It's hard for me to uh, hard for me to fathom that if there was a true elected school board with real accountability and oversight powers, that something like this could have been able to go on um, without um, steps being taken to make sure that we were protecting our kids. As mayor, also, um, what I would have done as soon as I got the first report of this is I would have held people accountable. I would have demanded action, and frankly, I would have led. Um, you know, the fact that there's not centralized background checks, the fact that the law department was. Um, doing the investigations, and there's no evidence so far that any of the people that were doing those investigations were trained, and really the sensitivities around interviewing children who are both victims and witnesses to make sure that um, you're being respectful and not re-victimizing them, that never should have happened, and I would have stopped that practice immediately because, of course, not only were they not doing the right thing to protect the kids in those investigations, um, they were uh, they had a gross conflict of interest because then they would turn around and use that information in defense of the city and lawsuits that were brought by parents. There has to be um, embedded in the social uh, emotional curriculum um, of kids at a particular age information about predators and what they can do to protect themselves. There should have been a hotline for uh, kids and parents to be able to call, and there should be information in every classroom. Um, about what children's rights are. So those, that's, that's just the low-hanging fruit for starters. Um, and then, you know, the, they knew about this for, uh, for five months. Well, the legislative session, um, the legislature was in session during that whole time. There should have been some activity on the part of the mayor and his team in Springfield to make sure that if there were any loopholes um, in getting rid of these predator um, teachers or other personnel, those actions should have been taken as well, and amending whatever statutes that needed to be changed to make sure that we weren't, as somebody described it, passing the trash, that we weren't allowing people who clearly uh, were predators of children to move from one school to another or one school district to another. Uh, so on to, I, th- I agree with you, of course, a thousand percent. Um, I, I, I'm I, sorry, I'm having a little difficulty hearing you. Can you speak up a little bit? Yeah. Can you hear me now? I can. Okay, great. I just wanted to ask, um, so you created a report when you were with the Police Accountability Task Force, and the DOJ has created a report, and it really feels like none of 
many of those suggestions haven't been implemented. Do you, can you speak on that or what's your top three sure. things that you would do immediately? And do you think the rub is just the Emanuel administration or do you think the police, the clout that the police in Chicago look, have? Look, the, the, the issues that we identified in the Police Accountability Task Force report, um, in the findings section, which were frankly mirrored uh, months later by the Department of Justice, demonstrate systemic problems that go back um, many years. Um, but fundamentally, what we know is that there was not a significant investment in, this, in the police department's most significant asset, which was its people. Now, there has been some progress that's been made. There's been um, some training that's been done. They've redesigned the use of force order. But it's not enough, and it's certainly not happening fast enough. Um, we know that there's an ongoing process right now with the attorney general's office um, to negotiate a consent decree. I believe it's drafts that have been um, circulated. But I know that last week um, the Fraternal Order of, of Police um, filed a motion to intervene in the Attorney General's case um, and, a, and filed a motion to dismiss um, part of that action, claiming that the Illinois Attorney General doesn't have, as in a legal term, standing, which basically says you have no right to challenge and seek the redress um, that you're seeking in this um, civil action. So they are filing a motion to dismiss that strikes at the very heart of whether or not the, the attorney general has the legal authority to even demand the kind of reforms that the AG and the city have been demanding. Wow. And, and in a disappointing way, once again, the mayor has been silent. The FOP is trying to cling to the status quo that, frankly, has failed its membership and it certainly has failed communities. And yet the mayor isn't leading and he's been silent. Wow. So there's a lot more work that needs to be done. Um, and part of the reason that I decided to run for mayor is I know, as a mayor, I know exactly what needs to be done. I know exactly how we can make the changes that are absolutely essential to make our police department best in class and really live up to its obligations to serve and protect our communities. And I can get that job done. <laughs> Radio Free Bridgeport spoke to the filmmakers of Wolfman's Got Nards, a look at the cult classic horror film of the 1980s. The guys behind Monster Squad discussed the camaraderie of late-night cinema, the weird world of VCR horror, and why the 80s really were a golden age for schlock. Radio Free with John Daly airs every Tuesday, drive time. One of my favorite films growing up, uh, and, and the famous line from that film was Wolfman's Got Nards. We've got Andre Gower and Henry McComas on the show. Thank you, guys. Hi. How are you? Hey, John. How are you? I'm well. How are you? We're doing uh, great. Doing, doing good. Doing good. Thank you for joining us. Tell us a little about Wolfman. Wolfman's Got Nards. Wolfman's Got Nards, huh? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know... Um, 
Wolfman's Got Nards, a documentary, is basically a film that kind of goes back and looks at the reasons why the films that affected us in our childhood can stay connected with us and impact us through our entire lives. Um, and really kind of what creates that tether and why people could really be so connected to something for so long. And we also get into some, um, you know, some discussions of, you know, why this particular movie didn't do so well, but found, you know, kind of found its niche misfit audience uh, as the years went by. And, you know, what is cult film? Is this a cult film? How does cult film affect, you know, fans over the years? Uh, and that's really kind of where the inspiration kind of started after hearing so many of these amazing stories that Monster Squad fans had told me over the years as we went through screenings and appearances and tours and things like that. And I just kind of wanted to, you know, kind of analyze that a little bit because I always thought those stories were a story. And so that's kind of where that inspiration came from. And then I got hooked up with... Uh, Henry and Pilgrim Studios, and uh, we just kind of developed into the into this amazing documentary that we have. Absolutely, we explore it from different perspectives. So the fans, obviously, and their connection is falling in love with the movie the first time they see it. We also uh, look at the cast and crew, and Fred Decker, the director, and the things he went through when it first released, and it wasn't uh, considered the best movie in the world. And then that thirty-year ramp up to when it became a classic as well as a bunch of filmmakers now that were inspired by the Monster Squad. It's the turn of 80s nostalgia films that are booming currently. So, okay. so okay. for uh, Jamie, I don't mean to interrupt you, but, but for me this was an instant classic, I have to say. So I think there's a certain segment at that time that it was perfectly uh, kind of pitched for. So as as a uh, someone who was born in August of 1980, I think that was, that was the target market and, and well-placed. Well, it, uh, you're certainly right, and that's I think, was the original idea. I think just because of, you know, maybe one or two or three different reasons of the era and the timing of this movie's release, it just didn't reach the widest audience, and it wasn't allowed, you know, kind of to have some breathing space and to catch on a word of mouth while it was in the box office. Um, you know, like I said, for a number of reasons. But then when that result happened, you know, all the people that saw it, in the theater and instantly connected with it, loved it, thought it was just like the greatest thing. And was, they, they never considered it as not working in the box office, but you know, they learned now that it was actually a complete bomb, you know, by technical <laughs> standards. But then, you know, the rest of the fan base that's so adamant and loyal and rabid today found it on HBO and the local video store, all because of that word of mouth phenomenon, uh, that, Back in that day, there was no social media and no internet. It was literally a word of mouth. Your buddy had to be standing next to you and tell you about it or hand you, you know, a, uh, a copied HBO VHS tape or, you know, something that they stole from the video store. So it really found a unique kind of following after its first run as well, and we explore that in the documentary also. So I actually we also might be the first uh, fan-demanded DVD. Because when the movie came back and started becoming popular, uh, some would say again, and others would say for the first time was in 2006, after we had an Alamo event and all the fans were there, and they said, when are we going to get our DVD? And because of that, Lionsgate listened. What is it about cult cinema that it remains so magnetic for people? Because I do remember at that time there were things like publications such as Psychotronic Cinema and uh, books such as uh, research and, and uh, catalogs such as Lumpanics that you could go to to find, you know, kind of 
I guess what was called at the time archly trash cinema. And I know that my friends in college and I used to pass around video cassettes of, of things that we found interesting. That's such a great question. And uh, it's really interesting. When we were filming the documentary, we asked all the filmmakers that question, what it means to be a cult film or why cult films impact people. And every single person answered the question differently. There wasn't one identical one. So while we were making it, we were thinking, what is it about cult film? Some of the uh, things that were similar is uh, if you grew up a misfit or an outcast or just really liking punk rock and you were listening to a radio station and it wasn't the pop hits that you wanted to listen to, it was something with a good edge on the guitar, then if you related to that, you're going to relate to cult films because they think outside of the box. And sometimes they're loud, and some people may think parts of them are cheesy, but what they are is also unique and authentic. And so they're playing to a chord that resonates with a certain type of subculture. These are the same people that you're going to find in an underground theater with a brown paper bag of Pabst PBR. And uh, those are the kinds of people that we like to hang out with. But was there something specific about the late 80s and early 90s? Because I do remember a real interest in, you know, so-called psychotronic cinema. And, and I, I, again, I remember the book that came out, I think Vicki Vale compiled it, called Incredibly Strange Films, or just kind of a survey of 60s and 70s and, and even beyond weird films that people had found that had, you know, been bombs, you know, when they came out, but had been given new life despite being what I think critics would call pretty bad. And as I recall, The Monster Squad was notably panned by Vincent Canby in the New York Times. I believe he called it a, 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 a advertisement for something or other, and it was, it was not complimentary. Uh, you know, what was it about these films beyond, you know, what mainstream critics or what the, the, the curators of high art would have said? What is it about them as a, as a group that became so powerful during that particular period? I think, well, I think you, go ahead, go for it. Well, I was just going to mention, I, I think if you go back um, to the kind of the original, uh, you know, offbeat films, even if the major motion picture, major motion picture studio films of the 30s and 40s, like the classic monster movies, those were all coming out of, you know, times of turmoil and times of, you know, uneasiness as a nation, economic hardship, wartime, things like that. And like monster movies, you know, kind of represented the anxiety and that, that the the country was feeling at the time, and they were geared towards adults. And as you fast forward a couple decades, then you really get into sort of the um, experimental films of the 60s and early 70s. And then in 70s, you kind of have exploitation films that come about and really kind of go down another path. And you get into the 80s where you're sort of having the adventure movie, the 80s, everything's feeling good time. But then there was a lot of things where you wanted to mash up all of those stuff you know, the classic monster movies that, you know, kind of represented some anxiety in the country, some experimental type films of the 60s and exploitation of the 70s. And you kind of got this kind of um, mashup of all of that leading into a new era. And there was so much diverse content in the 80s of different types of films, you know, all the way from mainstream studio Spielberg Amblin type things that some of it was pretty dark in some Spielberg movies. Uh, and, you know, all the way to, like, weird, edgy, you know, early David Lynch and things like that, which would catch on in what you call cult. But what's interesting about cult is no matter, no matter where it originates, it always evolves and changes. And, you know, something that was called cult in 78 wouldn't be called cult in 98, perhaps. So 
I think it's something that's always evolving, but I think it was the, you know, kind of maturation of the filmmakers that came through those decades and then were finally making their own content and wanted to put everything in there that affected them as youth. And it's a time when you have the Cormanites and you're just going off of the coattails of American Zotrope and stuff, when Coppola and Roger Corman, they were doing a young man's game. But when we got into the 80s, they were aiming their movies to a younger audience, but they weren't talking down to them. So you could be a teenager or a preteen, and you could go into a theater, and you could have hard R content. And you that's the reason why Fred Decker and Shane Black were channeling an audience, because they were capturing a voice that wasn't represented. Because before that, it was movies where, oh, those darn kids, up to no good again. But this, now they have voices, opinions, and ideas. And then you think of the 80s as a whole, it was a big time for branding. So if there was a movie with a weird concept, everything had a baseball card. Everything was on the side of a, of a Coke bottle. And it was genre. It wasn't like drama. It was sci-fi and it was horror. And everything had a really bad serial. <laughs> That's true. We, you know, on the you know, this is a similar time that RoboCop came out, and I remember that because I could not get in the theater. I went with my cousins to see it, and they, I literally got kicked out because that was a hard R film. Um, what, what, you know, in comparison uh, to the studio spends, where did Monster Squad fall in uh, in its budget? Uh, where did the where did Monster Squad fall in budget wise? Yeah, is what the studios were doing in those years. Yeah, I I, I think Monster Squad's uh, budget was somewhere around eleven or twelve million. That was quite a lot, right? That would be quite a lot. Is that right? Uh, well, look, yeah, that that is quite a lot, especially back then. Now, you know, granted, you know, movie studios back then were making twenty something movies a year, um, you know, for you know a range of different budgets. But you know, an eleven twelve million dollar kids adventure film is a pretty big budget thing. Now you have a, you know, you have an ensemble cast of monsters and kids and ancillary characters, but this was very effective driven and a lot of post-production involved in this movie as well. So, and it was a long shooting schedule because a lot of the kids stuff had to get done earlier during the day. And then the adults stayed all through the night to actually finish the movie. And when you have, you know, four or five original, you know, practical effect monsters and creatures that you have to deal with on a day-to-day basis, Plus a lot of, you know, right at that time that movie was in post-production, you were right at that, you know, transition period between, you know, the practical and using the new digital kind of technology and green screen, or not, no green screen, but like matte screen and, you know, digital effects of that early day. Um, and so that, that cost money and took a lot of time back then. And I think everything on that budget was, you know, put on the screen. <laughs>
Presents Bridge Portraits. Nothing against you. I'm just always looking down. That's why I don't never hardly have nothing to say. Why are you always looking down? Because if I'm looking up, I won't see any butts. Butts? Yeah. You're always looking down so you can see some butts? Yeah. Cigarette butts. I ain't some kind of perv or nothing. Today on Bridge Portraits, we're talking to butts. Local guy who walks around picking up cigarette butts. Do you smoke them when you get them? At the end of the day. So you only smoke at the end of the day? That's right. I smoke at night, when ain't nobody around to ask me for a smoke. Does it bug you when someone asks for a smoke? It's the rudest thing someone can do to someone. People are like chimneys. People are like dragging on smokes all day like fiends. I ain't no fiend. This is just a hobby for me. So, so you could quit whenever you want, is what you're saying? Anytime. And, and how, how long uh, How long you been doing this? 36 years. How long? 36 years. Wow, that's, so, so, like, why don't you buy your own? I don't want to give those big tobacco guys any more money than they've already got. So is this a protest? To be honest, once you start picking butts, you kind of get hooked. But you ain't got no addiction to smoking. Not to smoking. All right. To collecting, though. Big time. That's fascinating. Can I tag along while you are? Uh... Sure. I move slow, though. Ah, that's fine. It's... You know, in prison, they yeah. use cigarettes as currency. Yeah. Whole ones. Oh, yeah. You ever get locked up? <laughs> they don't do you for picking up litter. Yeah, but wintertime's got to be tough, though. Used to be. I got a job. Keeps me warm. So wh- wh- what do you do? I'm a neighborhood watch informant for the police. In exchange for info, they give me pretty much everything I need. That's awesome. Now, how'd that situation come about? Well, all over town, I'd find huge (laughs) piles of butts. Then one day I saw these cops in the bank parking lot sitting in their squad car filling out paperwork. And what were they doing? Chain smoking. (laughs) One thing leads to another. I help them out. They help me out. That that ain't bad at all. Oh, sir. Now, how about family? You got kids? You married? What's the deal with that? Nah, never had time for that. I was always a point A to point B type of guy. You ever feel like looking down all the time kind of made you miss out on life? Not really. Plus, there ain't much for me to look at. I don't see color. Oh, here we go. Here's one. So, wait, oh, hold on. You're colorblind? I don't see greens and blues. Ah, but I do see reds. Huh. Look at this butt. Got lipstick on it. See? I'm going to smoke this one later on. Better than kissing, I tell you. <laughs> yeah, take your word for it. Uh, so, so if there was a lesson to be learned in all this, what would it be? Uh, I don't know. Uh, keep your head down? <laughs> nah. I think it'd be something like, uh, do what you really want to do, and do it often. I, I couldn't agree with you more. That's a great place for us to end it. But I want to thank you for being my guest. And now we're going to send it back to Radio Free Bridgeport, John Daly. This week on The Trump Diaries, Trump's claims about an FBI conspiracy evaporate, thousands of migrant children are being warehoused in disused Walmarts, New York State sues Trump and company for persistent and illegal conduct, Trump creates a space force, and according to Trump, he won the World Cup. These are The Trump Diaries. 
Day 511, June 14th. Trump began the day by declaring that, quote, no longer a nuclear threat from North Korea. Everyone can now feel much safer than the day I took office. He also urged Americans to sleep well tonight. In a long-awaited report undercut one of Trump's key claims about the FBI's investigation into Hillary Clinton. That report found that James Comey deviated from FBI and Justice Department procedures while investigating Clinton and her use of a private email server. Comey also used personal email of his own to send classified files. But the report also concluded that Comey's decisions were not the result of political bias and that his decision not to prosecute was correct. Democrats reacted with anguish at the report, which also implied that Comey's actions in improperly alerting Congress about duplicate emails found on Huma Abdeen's estranged husband's computer tipped the election towards Trump. And New York State sued Trump and his three eldest children for persistent and illegal conduct at the Donald J. Trump Foundation. The lawsuit alleges that Trump repeatedly misused the nonprofit by using it to, among other things, pay political operatives and make personal payments. The state asked to dissolve the foundation and distribute its remaining $1 million in assets to other charities and forced Trump to pay at least $2.8 million in restitution and penalties. New York also asked the IRS to investigate and asked that Trump and his three children be barred from the boards of a nonprofit for a decade. Trump attacked the lawsuit, calling it a stunt by, quote, sleazy New York Democrats, and said, quote, I will not settle the case. Trump's former lawyer, Michael Cohen, is expected to cooperate with federal prosecutors in the criminal investigation into his business dealings. The law firm handling his case has been dropped. Cohen, who once claimed fealty to Trump like a mob don, is said to feel abandoned by his former boss, and having abandoned his lawyers and facing significant legal fees, is said to be close to flipping. Trump's allies are currently arguing that whatever compromising Cohen shares with prosecutors about Trump is a lie. Mueller's office said that Russian intelligence agencies are again trying to meddle in the 2018 U.S. midterm elections. Prosecutors are trying to block foreign intelligence agencies and defendants from seeing evidence of interference in the 2016 election, in case this results in the release of information that would assist them in future operations against the U.S. And Jeff Sessions cited a Bible verse that had been used to defend slavery in an attempt to defend the Trump administration's policy of separating undocumented migrant children from their families. Sessions invoked the Apostle Paul saying people should, quote, obey the laws of the government because God has ordained the government for his purposes. Sarah Huckabee Sanders also defended the policy saying it's, quote, very biblical to enforce the law. She then followed Trump's lead in claiming that the policy was due to the Democrats. Day 512, June 15th. Trump has separated 1,995 children from their parents at the border since the Justice Department implemented its zero-tolerance policy. Those children are reportedly being warehoused at a disused Walmart near the border and in tents. Trump falsely claims the policy which has evoked outrage is due to democratic laws. In fact, it is a deterrent policy enacted by ultra-right-wing advisor Stephen Miller. In an off-the-cuff interview with reporters, Trump said he wants, quote, my people to, quote, sit up at attention like the North Koreans do when Kim Jong-un speaks. In addition, he called James Comey a criminal, claimed the FBI is a den of thieves, and blamed Obama for Russia's annexation of Crimea. And a federal judge revoked Paul Manafort's bail and sent him to jail. Manafort had posted a $10 million bond and remained at home while awaiting trial on charges that included money laundering and false statements. Manafort had been accused of attempted witness tampering, Rudy Giuliani said in response to that news, quote, when the whole thing is over, things might get cleaned up with some presidential pardons. Trump announced a 25% tariff on $50 billion worth of Chinese imports. China immediately retaliated with $50 billion worth of tariffs, calling Trump fickle and provoking a trade war. The Dow fell 250 points in response. 
and Trump took credit for winning the bid to host the 2026 World Cup with Canada and Mexico. Quote, thank you for all the compliments on getting the World Cup to come to the USA, Mexico, and Canada. I worked hard on this along with a great team of talented people. In fact, Trump's election was viewed as a major drag on the World Cup bid, which worked hard to distance itself from him. Day 513, June 16th. Trump advisor Roger Stone met with a Russian national who wanted Trump to pay a $2 million fee for the political dirt on Hillary Clinton. Stone failed to disclose the meeting with Henry Okanashki to congressional investigators. Stone rejected the offer, calling it a waste of time. Mueller is now investigating that previously undisclosed meeting. Trump has authorized the United States Cyber Command to take a far more aggressive approach against cyber attacks. Cyber Command has been conducting nearly daily raids on foreign networks seeking to disable cyber weapons before they can be launched. The move could increase the risk of conflict with the foreign states that sponsor malicious hacking groups. It could also have powerful unintended effects as cyber warfare tools emigrate into the wild. And Trump told G7 leaders that Crimea is Russian because everyone who lives there speaks Russian. In 2014, Russia invaded and annexed Crimea from Ukraine. Day 514, June 17th. Outrage continued to grow over the plight of children being ripped from their parents' arms at the U.S. border under Trump's draconian policies. The children are being held in animal kennels and batting cages. Lawmakers from both parties demanded that Trump stop it with Laura Bush, conservative newspapers, and former Trump advisor Anthony Scaramucci joining with a chorus of Democrats. On the other side, Ann Coulter called the children crying at the border child actors, alleging they had been coached by liberals and given scripts to read. Melania Trump placed the blame on both sides, saying that she hates to see children separated from their families and hopes both sides of the aisle can finally come together. Trump continued to lie and claim that Democrats were responsible for this policy. He also said that Democrats were, quote, weak and ineffective with border security and crime. He claimed falsely that crime was way up in Germany due to migrants. It is actually at its lowest level in 25 years. And he finished off by saying the United States will not be a migrant camp, not on my watch. Day 515, June 18th. In a surprise, Trump directed the Pentagon to create a space force as a sixth branch of the military. Trump said his creation will be overseen by the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Trump said he will revive the nation's space program with trips to the moon and to Mars. And as expected, the Senate voted to reinstate the U.S. ban on Chinese telecom giant ZTE, which has violated American sanctions and was labeled as a national security threat. The move takes away a peculiar bargaining chip for Trump. Trump had allowed ZTE back in business after the Chinese government invested in a southeastern property owned by the Trump Organization and granted his daughter a dozen trademarks. The Supreme Court sidestepped challenges to partisan gerrymandering a pair of cases, instead ruling on narrow technical grounds. Those rulings were a setback for critics of partisan gerrymandering. A challenge, however, from North Carolina is waiting that could allow the justices to deal with warped maps drawn by partisan politicians. Here in Chicago, Trump Tower was found to have never followed EPA rules for documenting how its use of the Chicago River for cooling water impacts fish. The Trump International Hotel and Tower is one of the largest users of Chicago River water. It is also the only one that has failed to comply with those regulations. Late Monday night, Trump said he directed the United States Trade Representative to identify $200 billion worth of Chinese goods for additional tariffs at a rate of 10%. The Washington Post is reporting he is furious that China has refused to bend to his demands. Day 516, June 19th. Under mounting pressure, Trump and two members of his cabinet mounted an aggressive defense of his policy of separating children from their parents. 
Trump said of the migrants, quote, they could be murderers and thieves and so much else. We want a safe country and it starts with the borders and that's the way it is. Later, at a tense briefing, the head of Homeland Security, Kirsten Nielsen, claimed she had no choice in insisting the only way the practice could end would be through congressional action. Nielsen, however, did not follow her boss's lead and lie that the policy was the fault of the Democrats. Trump accused Democrats of wanting illegal immigrants to pour into and infest our country. Trump also shot down a Republican proposal floated by Ted Cruz to end family separations, calling the plan to hire thousands of new immigration judges crazy and saying the judges could be corrupt. Trump also lied again, claiming that crime rates have gone up in Germany as migrants have entered the country and that German officials have attempted to cover up that fact. German crime is actually at historic lows. And Trump withdrew from the United Nations Human Rights Council in protest of its frequent criticism of Israel's treatment of Palestinians. It was the first time a member has voluntarily left that council. The United States joins Iran, North Korea, and Etria as the only countries that refuse to participate in the council's meetings and deliberations. Trump again attempted to undermine the Affordable Health Care Act, issuing a sweeping rule that will make it easier for small businesses to band together to create health insurance plans that skirt many requirements of the act. Those plans called association health plans are opposed by consumer groups and many state officials because they will drive the costs up for those who need comprehensive care. The Koch brothers have been revealed behind a massive plan to foil any improvements to mass transit in the United States. The Koch brothers, who make money off fossil fuels, have been behind a shadowy effort to demonize any attempt to upgrade existing mass transit options in urban areas as boondoggles. They have also been behind sowing dissent on electric vehicles. A restrictive law on voting in Kansas, championed by Chris Kobach, the head of Trump's stillborn voter fraud commission, who has argued that millions of illegals voted in American elections, was struck down on Monday by a federal judge. The judge was withering in her dismissal, saying that Kobach had utterly failed to show evidence of widespread voter fraud. The judge also took Kobach to cast for his conduct as a lawyer during the trial, saying he violated rules that are designed to prevent prejudice and surprise at a trial. She sentenced him to six hours of mandatory legal education. Day 517, June 20th. Michael Cohen said he's now willing to give investigators information on Trump. Cohen hired New York lawyer Guy Petrillo to represent him in the federal investigation into his business dealings. Petrillo told the court Cohen wants Trump to pay his legal fees. Trump threatened to shut the government down in September over funding his border wall. Senators are currently willing to send Trump $1.6 billion this fall, but Trump wants $25 billion in a lump sum. The shutdown, if it happens, would just fall prior to the midterm elections and has revealed that Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross shorted stock in a Kremlin-linked shipping firm after learning that journalists were investigating his offshore investments. Ross claimed he was trying to divest his holdings when questioned by the New York Times. 600 members of Jeff Sessions' church filed a formal complaint accusing of child abuse, immorality, and racial discrimination for a zero-tolerance immigration policy that has led to children being separated from their parents at the border. 45% of Americans now approve of Trump's job performance, his highest approval rating since taking office. These are the Trump Diaries. Hitting Left spoke with Greg Kelly, the president of the Midwest SEIU Healthcare Local. Kelly discussed the urgency of healthcare and why it has become a major campaign issue. Hitting Left with the Klonsky Brothers airs every Friday at 11 a.m. Uh, Tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, Greg. You, you're a president now of the local for uh, one, just, a little over a year. Just over a year. You mm -hmm. replaced Keith, uh, great, uh, Keith, Keith Kelleher. Kelleher. Yeah. And uh, uh, tell us a little about your background. Like, what, what, yeah, so I was born on the west side of Chicago. Uh, grew up in Maywood and... and uh, Home of Fred Hampton, by Fred, the way, speaking of, of 68. Yeah. That's, that's exactly right. We swam at Fred Hampton Pool. 
which they just redid. Uh-huh. Uh, and Proviso East went High School, Proviso, ran yeah. track, and uh-huh. then went to University of Iowa, did a lot of student activism there. Uh, came home and started working for the clerk's office, uh, got it, became a steward, helped organize the office, and then eventually came on as staff, uh, union rep for the now defunct Local 46 of SEIU. Uh, and so started out as a member and moved up the ranks and uh, became president just over a year ago. Wow. So uh, now you're in for it. <laughs> well, that's just, you, it, it that's, has been a ride. Not just Greg. <laughs> yeah, you got, you're in for it. We're all in for it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, we, all, we all have a stake in this thing. Uh, what kind of changes, if, if the Supreme Court has expected r- rules uh, in a bad way on Janus, mm-hmm. uh, what is this going to mean for the way uh, SEIU uh, uh, Healthcare Illinois operates? What's gonna be, what kind of changes are you preparing for? So I think f- for us, because we went through Harris versus Quinn, Janus probably won't directly impact us very much. Uh, but it will certainly impact the ways in which we interact with the rest of labor. We know that public sector unions in Illinois in particular are really going to be facing it. We know that the right wing uh, is, you know, I think $80 million is the number that they came up with, that they're just going to really go after all of our members. And and, uh, so we expect there to be a sort of an onslaught of attack uh, from the right and and from, you know, people like Rauner, uh, just sort of. And so that's what we're expecting. It's going to be what we call the surround sound of anti-union stuff that's going to come out. Uh, but for us, it's since we went through Harris versus Quinn, we've learned. It's like kicking you when you're down already. Huh? That's right. That's, but, but, well, yeah, but you've learned. But we've you've learned, learned, you've learned, learned, learned that, through yeah. Harris versus Quinn that our members respect and really want their union. When you talk to them, they understand uh, what they're under, they understand who really wants them to not have a union, and I just think it means that we have to do a better job, and which is what we've tried to do. We actually try to engage our members more in fights, uh, things that they care about, and not just wages and benefits, but what's going on in their communities. Uh, we understand fully that we can't do it by ourselves, that we have to work in partnership with other unions, as well as allies and partners uh, who share our vision of what a, a just society should be. And so in a lot of ways, it's like back to the future, uh, you know, sort of how the labor movement sort of began in this country, and, and we just need to do it and, and uh, work together. Well, so ba- based on your experience now, mm-hmm. if you were to have a sit-down, uh, I, uh, I was, as people who listen to the show know, uh, I was president of uh, uh, Illinois Education Association Local for about a decade and a member for 30 years. Mm-hmm. If you were going to sit down with, uh, say, the leadership of the, and I'm sure you do, uh, <laughs> with the leadership of, the, uh, say, the Illinois Federation of Teachers mm-hmm. or the uh, Illinois Education Association, which haven't up until now faced, mm-hmm. faced the situation, mm-hmm. what would you tell them? Actually, what I do tell them, and it's a, it's a good point, one of the things that, that Rauner did um, and when he uh, became governor, is that he made folks understand that we were truly more powerful when we acted together, when we communicated together. And so we've been doing that uh, of late quite a bit, uh, strategizing around, you know, what does Janice mean? 
um, you know, what does it mean? Because, by the way, Friedrichs was a case prior to Janice uh, that would have done what Janice seeks to do. But Luckily, for, somebody died. Exactly, That's a terrible thing to say. Yeah. But the, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm, but I'm sorry. for Scalia's death, uh, we would have faced this uh, a couple of years ago. Radio Free also welcomed Vivian McConnell into the studio. As VV Lightbody, McConnell played her self-described nap rock for us off her recently released LP, Bathing Peach. We are live with VV Lightbody. We're going to be talking with Vivian about the new album. Uh, tell us a little bit about Bathing Peach. So Bathing Peach is my debut solo record. Um, it just came out on June 15th, last Friday. And um, this is... A super exciting time for me because I've been working on it for about three years, kind of poking along at it at my own pace. And um, it feels really great to finally have it out. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, congratulations. Thank you. So you were involved with some other projects before you uh, were a solo artist. You, grandkids, is that right? Yeah, Grandkids and Santa. Okay. Um, Tell us a little bit about them, just for, for people that don't know your background and, and what you, you know, kind of where you came out of. Sure. So um, both of those bands started in Champaign, um, Urbana. Uh, we all were going to University of Illinois. And um, actually, Santa is my older brother's band and Grandkids was kind of my my group. And um, they're just like a little bit more rock and roll. Santa's kind of like indie pop um, kind of like dream, dark doo-wop. Um, and grandkids is kind of like, people describe us as math folk. Um, kind of, we just start, you know, lots of like changes in time signatures and kind of like all over the place. And um, yeah, so Vivi kind of came out of um, a couple of reject songs for grandkids um, and songs that I felt were too personal for that project and also um, too good to, you know, just let sit in my computer or whatever in my phone. Yeah. I, I love hearing uh, how music described. I never forget uh, a mutual friend of ours, Marin Celeste, came in and she was sitting in the very suit you were. And she says, well, I play psychological death metal. <laughs> New album on its way. Which, of course, if you know Marin, right. yeah, uh, yeah. Is, is enjoyably uh, funny. Um, what is VV Lightbody? Is it a persona? Is it an act? How do you, how do you conceptualize this? Um, I think about it as kind of a a reflection of myself. Um, a persona, I think, is a good word. Um, it's very, very similar to Vivian, who I am. Um, but there's kind of like some exaggerations, some stretching and bending of the truth and in stories and things that have happened to me, um, mainly relationships, okay. <laughs> which is a common theme I'm noticing in a lot of people's music. So, And you play, Vivi Lightbody exists as, I mean, you you are Vivian is Vivi Lightbody, mm -hmm. but I've also seen you play with a full band. Right, is that's also Vivi Lightbody? So, is the project basically Vivi Lightbody is whatever you are doing at the moment in a sense? Yeah, exactly. Um, this is in part because I'm an incredibly busy person, mm -hmm. um, and I wanted the the project to be super flexible and almost stress free in a way. Right. Um, so you know, if I have a show, it's like very 
yeah, flexible. I mean, if it's something quieter, I can just bring myself. Sometimes I bring the two flutes. Um, the record, I play flute, and so there's a bunch of flute on the record. Um, and then for bigger shows, like when we played at Copro, we had a full band. And um, I'm just kind of trying to keep people on their toes, especially because it's really hard to get people to come out and see live music. Um, and so if I'm, I'm trying to provide a different experience um, each time I play. Okay, and your next show is, as far as I know, you're playing with Options on June 25th. Yeah, this Monday. And at, that's over the Empty Bottle. Mm-hmm, yeah. So it's at the Empty Bottle. So if, if you're interested, VV Lightbody, uh, that's at 8.30, uh, June 25th at the Empty Bottle. More information, of course, is on the on the Empty Bottle's uh, Facebook page. Um, what do you do in, in, in real life, I guess, when you're not being VV Lightbody or kicking a soccer ball around in Armor Square's oh. backyard? <laughs> yeah, um, I haven't been doing that as much as I would like to, but... Um, uh, as far as my job goes, I'm just curious, or how, yeah. yeah, well, um, I teach music for a nonprofit called Intonation Music. Um, I'm a rock and roll instructor, um, so <laughs> I'm kind of doing music all the time, um, which is great. I mean, I feel really lucky. I kind of stumbled into intonation, and it's a dream job for sure. Um, I also like to make food. I like to f- ferment things. I make sauerkraut. I make a mean sauerkraut. Make a mean center. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I like, yeah, that's kind of what I do when I'm not doing VV Lightbody. Where'd you record the album? Um, my friend, who is also the keyboard player of the group, um, Dan Pearson, in his home studio in Logan Square. Um, and we mixed it at Sound Vault Studios, which is in Fort Knox, which is a big kind of practice space unit um, up on the north side. But yeah, we it's all it's all pretty DIY, um, which was really it felt really fitting for the sound. Nap rock, you know. Nap rock. Nap rock. That's what I that's what I call VV Lightbody. Nap rock. <laughs> Not psychological death metal. Kind of the opposite. Okay. Well, <laughs> why don't we hear a tune? Uh, what, what are you going to play? The, the album again is called uh, Bathing Peach. What, what song mm-hmm. are you going to play for us? I was I was going to play Fig Leaves. Okay. Um, and this song is kind of um, the record is kind of a ba- breakup record in a way. Okay. Um, and the song is kind of about. Um, just kind of having different desires than a partner in a way so well we'll shut up and let you play and then we'll come back and we'll be talking with more you're listening to vv lightbody on radio free bridgeport Time 
Lumpin' Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. Lumpin' Week in Review is overseen by Logan Bay, produced and engineered by Jamie Trecker. The Lumpin' theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpin' Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpinradio.com. Lumpin' Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpinradio.com. This episode of Lumpin' Week in Review is dedicated to the memory of our colleague and friend, Dan Jugal. (laughs) ¶¶ 